Okay, Pat, let's talk about your patient. All right. My patient is a 58-year-old woman who presented at the age of 47, and that was back in October of 1997, with a hard right breast nipple retraction and a 1.4-centimeter palpable axillary lymph node. She underwent an incisional biopsy that showed a 7-millimeter in the incisional specimen, 7-millimeter invasive ductal cancer, grade 1, extensive LVI, focal dermal lymphatic invasion at the time. It was 1997. Stem cell transplants were still being done. I talked about her with a physician at Yale, and we proceeded with neoadjuvant doxorubicin, and she got 75 milligrams per meter squared for five cycles. And then she underwent mastectomy. And at that point, she had extensive permeation of the breast parenchyma by infiltrating an in-situ ductal carcinoma. It was no size. It was just throughout the whole breast. There were some atrophic changes suggestive of chemotherapy effect, but she had 14 of 15 positive axillary lymph nodes with extracapsular extension. She went down to Yale. She received a tandem transplant with high-dose melphalan with peripheral blood stem cell transplant, followed by high-dose thiotepa with peripheral blood cell transplant, and that was done in April of 1998. She then went on to receive right chest wall radiation. She started tamoxifen, and she was also placed on a bisphosphonate. That was, I think, one of the first studies was coming out suggesting that the bisphosphonates might decrease metastatic disease. She finished her tamoxifen, in June of 2003 and came in for a routine follow-up visit the day after MA17 was published. And so we talked about the data and she got started on Femara. She was still clinically NED. She got started on Femara in October of 2003 and interestingly came off it in April of 2004 because she was having insomnia related to it. She just couldn't sleep and she just couldn't tolerate the drug. So we put her on anastrozole and she did fine on the anastrozole, continuing that. She started that in 604. So she was on pretty continuous hormonal therapy. Interestingly, in 2004, she was admitted with a pyelonephritis that was complicated by a stone in the ureter and ended up in septic shock, intubated, and got through that and did fine after that. In the fall of 2007, she came in with her friend, who was a patient of mine who developed uh, breast cancer metastatic to her pleura and had a pleural effusion and was getting treatment. And lo and behold, in February of 2008, she actually presented to her primary physician, even though she was coming in and not actually seeing me, but with her friend, with increasing shortness of breath and was having trouble, you know, doing her usual activities and usual walking. Had a chest x-ray that showed a right pleural effusion. Pleural effusion was tapped, malignant cells consistent with breast cancer. They were fixed in formalin, so it may affect the interpretation, but it was ER positive, PR borderline, and HER2 negative. Her original cancer was ER positive as well. Bone scan was negative. And the liver was kind of indeterminate. A CAT scan showed a 1.6 centimeter area in the liver and another 4.7 millimeter area that were somewhat indeterminate, but there. And she had no pulmonary nodules. There was no other evidence, of, definitive evidence of metastatic disease. And interestingly, the fluid, even though she got tapped over the course of a week, the fluid accumulated and she was requiring another tap because she was symptomatic from this. Was that her only tumor-related symptom, shortness of breath or yes, anything else? just shortness of breath. So, Kathy, perhaps we would be thinking about moving away from hormone therapy at this point? Or what do you think? Not we as in me. Not you. You, <laughs> you want to try another hormone? Absolutely. I would give her another hormone. If the fluid is reaccumulating, that 
quickly. I would talk to our interventional radiologist about one of the Plurex catheters to allow her to manage that at home and get gradual pleuridesis rather than the big garden hose painful way of giving her pleuridesis. So which and hormone? I would probably switch her to a full vestrant. Switching her to a steroidal AI would also be quite reasonable, would give her equal benefit. So either one of those would be fine. If she prefers to get a shot, I would absolutely use a loading dose of the full vestrin in her, but I would be equally happy with either one. And I honestly wouldn't think about chemotherapy in her. Uh, what would it take for you to think about chemotherapy? Progression on the next hormone? Progression on the next hormone or the next two hormones, more difficulty controlling her symptoms. I mean, she has nothing that tells me her disease is refractory to hormones. She has a long disease-free interval. She has some local symptoms from her disease, but has fairly limited disease bulk. She's been on an AI for four years until her disease has progressed. So I don't know on what basis we'd say she's hormone refractory. Edith? Yeah, at the same time, the data from the EFFECT trial that you are really alluding to in terms of the similar benefit of exemestin versus fulvestran in patients with progression to steroidal AI, unfortunately showed a very, very short median time to progression. So they were equivalently poor in terms of overall patient management, although certainly in terms of tolerability, the tolerability is much better than chemotherapy. But we just need to remember these drugs are not that great after tumor progression on a non-steroidal AI. So assuming you decided she was hormone, that's kind of a little bit in the eyes of the beholder. Maybe you you express these concerns that maybe she could progress. She sounds like somebody who you would have a lot of concerns about, you know, Well, I did. And I mean, you have to remember that this lady went through a stem cell transplant, you know, 10 years ago. So she wants to be very aggressive about her treatment. Although it probably did her no good. Who knows? I mean, she may not be able to convince her of that. I understand that. But this is grade one ER ER-positive breast cancer with a very long disease-free interval. I think that we have an abundant amount of data that would suggest that that wasn't the right approach. And I'd actually... If she were headed in that direction in terms of talking about more aggressive therapy, I'd gently have that conversation. I also suspect that she was premenopausal at the time of diagnosis and went through menopause with treatment. Correct. So what would you be thinking about if you got to the point where you felt the patient was hormone insensitive, Kathy? I would talk to her about, in my mind, really two chemotherapy options, depending on her choices. And those two would be either single-agent capecitabine, which would have the potential advantage of being oral, not causing alopecia, not causing trouble with myelosuppression. I would have some slight concerns about her bone marrow reserves and ability to tolerate really myelosuppressive chemotherapy that's been variable in folks after autologous transplant. She's had two autologous transplants, so I'd be a little more worried about that with her with some other choices. The other option I would think about would be weekly paclitaxel with bevacizumab as in the E2100 study. That also is not going to have major issues with myelosuppression. It was quite well tolerated. It may actually help her pleural effusion because of decreasing the vascular permeability with the bevacizumab, so it may help some of her local issues. That's been interesting, too. You know, in our ovary series, you know, we've heard a lot about the effects of bevacizumab on ascites and VEGF 
It's been interesting. Can you explain a little bit more about that? So the old name for VEGF was vascular permeability factor because one of the first effects identified of that particular protein is uh, increase in the leakiness of blood vessels. That's why in dogs, if you infuse VEGF in a dog lab, they get swollen and their blood pressure goes down because you've decreased vascular tone and increased leakiness. So inhibiting VEGF tends to have the opposite functions. It increases the strength of tight junctions. There's less leakage of the lymphatic fluids into the surrounding tissues. And it's one of the reasons why it's been interesting to use in ovarian cancer and tough to separate. Is it really having a direct effect on the cancer cells? Or are we seeing this major clinical improvement because ascites and pleural effusions is such a major component of that disease? I know, and I always ask the ovary docs when I interview them if they have any cases like that, and they tell me about it. And a lot of it does seem like it's the vascular thing when they talk about the cases. And that probably is a big component of it. That's probably not the whole story, but that's such a prominent feature of the clinical scenario of ovary cancer that understanding how this drug works at a more biologic, mechanistic level really does explain why it's been so successful there. So Edith, what are your thoughts? You know, we talked a lot yesterday and always is this issue of first line chemo, the question of Bev, you know, and how would you be thinking through in a clinical situation like this, that choice? You know, in a patient like this, we really do look at what clinical trials we have available at any particular time because we don't have a single best choice for first-line management of patients with metastatic breast cancer. So we're not wedded to the past. We're looking at the future. And in the absence of an applicable clinical trial, which will be likely in this situation because there appears to be not real measurable disease, then I will go through the menu. And what Kathy mentioned sounds very appropriate. What about the issue, Eric, of bevacizumab with capecitabine? Of course, Kathy, that's been a big issue with her, but she's been in the middle of that research. I'm curious about your perspective on it. We first had the trial in late-line therapy, Kathy reported a few years ago, Excalibur Phase two. Now we've got a press release out there from Ribbon 1 with a little bit of information. Where do you think this is headed? Yeah, so I don't think we can pay much attention to a press release without some data. And I have to say that I agree with Kathy 100% in terms of, one, using a hormone now, and two, in terms of the chemotherapy options. I'm not terribly confident that Bev adds a great deal to capecitabine in patients with metastatic breast cancer. I may be wrong, but at the moment, I think that the data would suggest that it doesn't. And so in giving her capecitabine, I would be doing that to give her a regimen that is oral, that's keeping her you know, away from the infusion room. She doesn't need a bisphosphonate. She doesn't have bone meds. So she really doesn't have a reason to be in the infusion room. And so Bev complicates that. And then again, the alternative would be paclitaxel and bevacizumab. I think there's one other point that I just want to quickly make or two rather. One is that I think this case illustrates something that was seen in MA17, which is that volume of disease matters even in terms of late recurrence. And we don't fully understand predictors of late recurrence, but we know actually from MA17 that volume of disease matters. Node positive patients were more likely to recur than node negative patients. And I think that goes into your calculus when you're figuring out what to do with delayed endocrine therapy. And then the other thing, and I alluded to this before, I'm worried about her. Unlike our previous patient, where I think it's likely that she may do well for a long, long time, I do agree with Edith that I think it's pretty likely that she's going to have progression on endocrine therapy, and you're going to have to watch her closely. That said, pleural effusions aren't a great way to follow patients. 
and you're going to deal with her pleural effusion. So, you know, you're going to deal with her pleural effusion, and then you're going to just watch her closely. So I have to ask you, Kathy, what your take is on the Cape Cytobine Biv saga that's been going on for several years, and I guess I'll continue. Well, I think the saga will continue. I think the larger question is whether you can expect the same improvement by adding bevacizumab to whatever chemotherapy you think might be most appropriate for that patient's situation. Or alternatively, are there some chemotherapy drugs or chemotherapy schedules that are particularly synergistic where you get a much greater improvement that really should be our first choices? You would need a randomized trial of similar patients all getting BEV, but getting different chemotherapies to really sort that out. And at this point, we don't have such a thing, though Eric and Edith and their hats as NCCTG and CALGB chairs have a trial that is doing just that in patients with first-line metastatic disease. Yeah, and I want to get that out on the table, too, because I'm curious from the group here what you think about this study in terms of how patients and how docs will respond to it. But, you know, again, just getting back to this issue of which chemo, you know, we talk about BEV and lung cancer and colon cancer and, you know, renal, and there's always this controversy about how it works and about chemo and which chemo. We did have the Avado study at the last ASCO meeting looking at docetaxel. What were your thoughts on that? So I have to say, when I give someone BEV in this situation, it's always with weekly paclitaxel because that's where the data is. It's the regimen that I developed, so I've tons of experience with it, as do all of my nurses, which adds to the comfort of taking care of those patients. The Avado trials showed an improvement in progression-free survival and response rate by adding BEV to every three-week docetaxel. There are really minimal differences in the patient populations between those two studies. Their eligibility criteria were virtually identical. The hazard ratios look quite favorable, but the absolute improvement and the absolute progression-free survival was really quite modest compared to 2100. And the toxicity, because of the different toxicities with every three-week docetaxel, was substantial. So I honestly find no justification for using every three-week docetaxel with BEV as a therapy for these folks. It does not appear to be better, and it's clearly more toxic. So why would I? So Eric, tell us about this new study, which I think is a great study, and I love the translational aspects of it. I think people are going to really find it intriguing. We want your help. Um, so <laughs> we need their help. <laughs> we, we need their help because it's a big study. So this is a study that's jointly being led by the NCCTG, so Edith's group and the CLGB, and is a very straightforward study for the patient who would otherwise be getting paclitaxel or perhaps docetaxel and bevacizumab off study. And it is a trial that randomizes patients to paclitaxel and bevacizumab versus abraxane and bevacizumab. And you all know you know, that there's been a real push to use abraxane, albeit, I think, with pretty thin data, and we need more. And finally, the third arm is ixabepilone and bevacizumab. And so, you know, the design itself is very, very simple, antimicrotubule agent in combination with bevacizumab, and then along with the primary question, we are asking a whole host of correlative questions to try to understand which tumors respond preferentially to one agent versus another. We also have some retrospective data in the CLGB looking at white versus African-American women who had received taxanes in the metastatic setting, and we're prospectively looking at that in this trial as well. The trial is, you know, in the range of 700 patients. So 
we do need your help, and it's a very, very simple trial. And I guess another thing that we could look at, Kathy, here is more about trying to predict who responds to BEV and maybe come up with some kind of predictors. Your group with Brian Schneider leading the paper had a really interesting study you've been telling me about for a while. It just got published a few months ago in the JCO looking at SNPs and hypertension. Can you sort of capsulize what you reported there? So Brian looked at whether host vectors and particularly inherited polymorphisms of either the VEGF gene itself or the VEGF receptor 2 gene might influence benefit from bevacizumab or potential toxicities. And hypertension was the toxicity that we looked at because the others are so infrequent that there just weren't the numbers to do that sort of analysis. He found two VEGF-A polymorphisms that clearly predicted an improved overall survival in patients treated with paclitaxel and bevacizumab. This really was a predictive factor because those polymorphisms had no impact on overall survival in patients treated with paclitaxel alone. What was fascinating was that those two polymorphisms didn't predict an improvement in response rate or progression-free survival. They only predicted an improvement in overall survival. There were two different VEGF-A SNPs that seemed to protect patients from developing grade 3 or 4 hypertension. So if you had inherited one of those SNPs, only about 3 to 4% of patients developed grade 3 or 4 hypertension. And what was perhaps the most interesting was that if you inherited one of the SNPs that portended a better overall survival, you never inherited a SNP that protected you from hypertension. So that triggered Brian to go back and ask the ECOG statisticians to look for the entire study population, whether there was an association with grade 3 or 4 hypertension and overall survival in the BEV-treated patients, because we only had genomic material for about half of the patients in the trial. And in the overall population, we do see an association with improved overall survival in BEV-treated patients who developed grade 3 or 4 hypertension. So this study has lots of caveats. It was a retrospective biologic analysis of a prospective trial. We only had genetic material for about half of the patients. We looked at a lot of SNPs and a lot of outcomes, so there are issues with multiple testing. But we're looking both for other data sets and other tumor types. We have been talking to the folks from Roche about trying to duplicate some of this work in samples that they have from the Avado trial. But importantly, in the adjuvant trial in E5103, we are collecting genomic DNA specifically to look at these potential predictors that Brian's identified in this first work, but also to take a much wider look across the genome for other associations of genes that we might not have predicted on a mechanistic basis, but might be important in either benefit or toxicity. We had a satellite meeting at ASCO last year, and we decided to put people together from different tumor backgrounds as an experiment. It's pretty interesting. And representing breast cancer was your colleague, Dr. Sledge, who talked about this because it was about to be published. And the other people, Alan Vanuk and colon cancer, couldn't think of that really being looked at there. I can't remember who we got a couple of people from lung cancer. I think there was some stuff in renal cancer with hypertension. They had looked at hypertension in renal cancer, saw perhaps an association with a much smaller sample size, so tougher to get the numbers. Your point that when you looked across trials, the breast cancer trials virtually all have correlative endpoints. I think is particularly important to this discussion because one of Brian's difficulties in trying to get other large data sets to expand this work and try to replicate it is that most of the other large trials didn't collect tissue. They didn't collect genomic DNA. They didn't collect tumor blocks or any tissue that you could use to get genomic DNA. So that's really been one of our challenges in this work is that if you don't collect the tissues, 
really good ideas and leads that may come up later that you can't predict can't be accessed. So just follow up with what happened with this patient. We had a long discussion about the different options. We talked about hormonal therapy. We talked about a trial that was going on at Yale looking at an AI and serafinib. We talked about chemotherapy and the pros and cons. And ultimately, we decided to do chemotherapy. And since I was going to do chemo first line, I was going to use bevacizumab. And I actually used nabpaclitaxel and bevacizumab. She didn't respond immediately. We were doing weekly treatment, like three weeks on, a week off, in the bevacizumab every other week. And in April, she started in February and April, her scan still showed a persistent effusion and still showed the liver lesion. By July, the scans had cleared. I continued therapy for kind of six months of chemo as kind of an arbitrary gauge. And at that point in October, there was no evidence of disease by PET scan or CAT scan. Everything was totally clean. I continued on a maintenance of Avastin and was trying to figure out whether I could add the Fazlodex to that or just keep her with the Avastin. And she was beginning to develop proteinuria, less than a gram per 24 hours, but was developing proteinuria. And she just got stayed last week again, and the liver lesions are now back on her scan. So, I mean, the disease-free interval was fairly short. The pleural effusion is not reaccumulated. And there probably are, there were at least two at the beginning. There's probably two, maybe three. And if I go back over all her scans, it's kind of, well, maybe we see this. So I think they were there that may have been off and on over the whole course of treatment. And so now she's asymptomatic, and I think we will try the fulvestrin as our next step to see if we can maintain her for a longer period of time on just something hormonal. So how long has she been on the bevacizumab? It's been just under a year. Under a year. So Eric, would you continue the bevacizumab with the fulvestrin? With hormonal therapy, no. Edith, what do we know about that strategy? Yeah, first of all, in this patient, in terms of principles, I usually continue the chemotherapy along with the bevacizumab. So I do not automatically discontinue chemotherapy at a set number of cycles because the interaction of those two mechanisms of action may be important for anti-tumor control. Unless, of course, the patient is having significant toxicity from the chemotherapy. Then the other situation, if a patient develops progression on bevacizumab, I would stop the bevacizumab because we don't have any data suggesting that it's a good approach. And actually, we're going to report some data pretty soon of fulvestrin in combination with bevacizumab in a phase two trial. But that's independent of this situation. And what are you going to report? Come on, Edith. Come on. When are you reporting it? You can tell us. ASCO? No, we're going to write the paper. Oh, you're going to write a paper. Okay, yeah, so you can't yeah. talk about it? It's modest, very modest. Hmm. So the CLGB has a randomized trial right. of an AI with or without bevacizumab. There's also a cohort of women in that study who would be more appropriate for tamoxifen than an AI because they might have received an AI in the adjuvant setting, and they're also eligible and will receive tamoxifen with or without bev. So we had a meeting last week at ASCO GI or GI Symposium on biologics and GI cancer. And the biggest source of controversy coming out of that was when Axel Grothy from colon cancer got out there and started talking about the bright tumor registry that you all heard about. And the suggestion, I know, this will get your blood pressure up. Did this lady's blood pressure go up, incidentally? She had no. She had no problems with her blood pressure. She no had pro- no problems with nosebleeds. Her major toxicity, part of the reason we stopped the Abraxin was profound fatigue. She was napping two, three hours a day. She just, you know, had a real dramatic change in her quality of life. That was no neuropathy. I mean, it was pretty impressive that that was her only major toxicity. So it wasn't a scheduled stop. She was having problems. She was having problems. And we had talked about it kind of an arbitrary six months. And so when we hit that point, she said, I've had enough. In any event, Eric, you know, patients like this, or maybe let's say that this response had gone on for two years. You know, there are people out there who clearly seem to have responses. They get toxicity. They're Owen Bev. And the question is, you know, in this situation, is getting hormones, but if you wanted to use chemo 
in a patient like that do you keep the BEV going? We know that a lot of people are doing that in colon cancer for better or worse because of the data that actually just got published in the JCO from the Bright Registry. What about in breast cancer? So in breast cancer, we just don't have the data. And, you know, I think that as a general rule, not to say that there may not be an occasional exception for whatever reason, I don't think we want to be keeping the BEV on board and switching out chemotherapy drugs the way we did initially with Herceptin. And, you know, we did this with Herceptin at a time when we didn't know if that would be beneficial or not. It turns out that that probably was the right approach in terms of anti-HER2 therapy. But we need answers here. And Could you just, as long as you brought it up, obviously we're going to talk about HER2-positive disease a lot today, but as long as you brought it up, because it is a similar concept of continuation of a biologic explain why you said that and really about the German trial that was presented at last ASCO. Yeah, so, you know, we have a number of lines of evidence that would suggest that continuing anti-HER2 therapy is important in HER2-positive disease for at least some patients for some amount of time beyond progression. I think that's about as far as I can go. And so where do those data come from? So there's a German trial that was small and somewhat underpowered but randomized patients who had received a taxane and trastuzumab to receive either capecitabine or capecitabine plus trastuzumab. Now, most of these patients actually went right from their taxane trastuzumab to the trial. So even those patients on capecitabine actually had trastuzumab on board for a while. In spite of that, because of course trastuzumab has a long half-life, in spite of that, they demonstrated an advantage for continuing trastuzumab in association with capecitabine versus capecitabine alone. That really fits with the data we've seen with lapatinib, where lapatinib continued after trastuzumab is of benefit, again suggesting that suppressing HER2 after patients have had progression on trastuzumab is useful. And then Finally, we have data from the study that Joyce O'Shaughnessy presented at ASCO this past year. It was, I believe, a randomized phase two trial. So again, unfortunately, an underpowered trial, but a trial that looked at lapatinib alone in patients with trastuzumab refractory disease versus lapatinib plus trastuzumab. And there, the combination biologic therapy, so using trastuzumab again in patients who had previously progressed on trastuzumab, was associated with a higher response rate and a longer time to progression. So I think all of that makes me much more inclined to continue anti-HER2 therapy, and generally that means continuing trastuzumab in someone where I'm going to do this since I typically haven't given lapatinib through multiple lines of therapy. But all of this has made me want to continue trastuzumab longer than I used to. So just final question to Edith, because I'm thinking maybe we can give you a little input that might be helpful over the next few months or a year if you do kind of run into problems with hormone therapy, which is, you know, it's interesting too, if you kind of separate out the financial cost issue from the side of it, you know, we can't not think about the cost. It's different if you don't think about it. But in any event, Edith, would you ever consider going back to Bev Chemo and this lady, you know, a year from now or at some point in time? Yes, I would. Any thoughts about which chemo? Exabepilone actually will be potentially amazing drug for this patient. The preclinical data with bevacizumab and isabepilone are fantastic. 
this patient did not have peripheral neuropathy with napaclitaxel, and we know that the incidence of neuropathy with exabepilone is associated with prior neuropathy. So at least from that standpoint, this patient may tolerate exabepilone for a while. Do we have any data on exabepilone, Bev? Not in large clinical studies, but preclinically it looks really good. I mean, and it, any? I mean, have you uh, used it in patients? We have used it, yes. Uh, yes. But not reported it? No. Interesting. Alan? Late recurrences in patients who have received a prior anthracycline adjuvant. I've been going back to an anthracycline, doxel, very simple to give once every four weeks, not a whole lot of toxicity. Any data about that approach? Eric? Not a lot. I'll tell you that I do the same thing. There is some data. There was data specifically looking at that question in a trial at San Antonio that I actually found not all that interesting. Was that Joe Sperano's study? Yes. This is in patients who had previously received an anthracycline? Yes. Oh, okay. Can you talk about that study? Let the experts speak. So I didn't find it all that interesting because it was really looking at a chemotherapy question and looking at single agent versus combination, which is not a a strategy that I use. It was docetaxel alone or docetaxel with the liposomal doxorubicin, specifically in patients who had had previous therapy with doxorubicin. So it was both looking at potential efficacy of further anthracycline exposure as well as potential cardiac toxicity with the liposomal form. Like virtually every chemotherapy study that adds another chemotherapy drug, you get a very modest improvement in response rate and time to progression with no other improvements from a patient standpoint, and you clearly increase toxicity. Though in this case, the one toxicity that was not increased was cardiac toxicity, which would be the biggest concern. It increased all of the other hand-foot myelosuppression toxicities. So I would not in any way use the results of that study to say that these folks ought to get treated with combined therapy. But I have used thinking about retreatment with an anthracycline at some point in my armamentarium. It's never my first option, partly because of toxicity concerns, not cardiac toxicity, but some of the other toxicities. And intuitively to me and my patients, if I have options that have a very different mechanism of action than what they got before, that just feels better. I have no data to show you that it actually works better, but it feels better. But I do tell patients that at some point we may think about coming back to that that you had years ago, and liposomal doxorubicin would be the way to do it to try to minimize exposure and cardiac issues. 